everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey guys, welcome back to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, and we are exploring the power of ideas together. And before we jump into this episode, I just want to recap the uh, the idea behind this podcast is that ideas have power. We're looking at the ideas that are giving shape to the contours of modern society, the little tagline. And I was actually reading the Communist Manifesto a couple weeks ago. I wanted to go back to an original document as there's so much talk of, kind of neo-Marxism in our culture today. And Drew, I was struck with just how much Marx and Engels, who authored the Communist Manifesto, how much they were earnest in their desire to liberate the working poor. And their idea was well-intentioned. Their idea to uh, behind this kind of idea of a classless society was well-intentioned. And it was amazing to see that despite their good intentions, their ideas led to potentially more bloodshed than any other two people's ideas in history in that Uh, Stalin took up Marxism in the Soviet Union and Mao in China and Pol Pot in Cambodia. And you had tens of millions of people who lost their lives in the 20th century. And Marx actually never got to see that. Engels, they passed away late 19th, early 20th century. And even though an idea is well-intentioned, it doesn't mean it's necessarily a good idea. And so we want to look at the ideas that are giving shape to our beliefs today. But real quick before we dive in, Drew, give us a recap of the first episode. If you missed it, I would love for you guys to go back and check out episode one, because a lot of what we're going to share today built on that. You know, and last time we talked about how everybody lives within a belief system. And we use this illustration. It's like the water we're swimming in. There's no such thing as neutral culture or neutral beliefs. And we, in passing, uh, tossed around this concept of a new American religion that is the dominant belief system in our nation, and we um, gave it the label secular humanism. And so today, we're going to dive a little deeper into what is a religion, and if that is indeed the new American religion, what might some of the core beliefs be, or doctrines even, behind that, and how does that stack up with what we claim as disciples of Jesus? So, Mick, why don't you tell us, you know, if we were going to say, what exactly is a religion, what are some of the critical elements that, that are present? Yeah, so a religion is going to answer a lot of questions, but four fundamental questions regarding origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And I'm, I'm drawing that from Ravi Zacharias. Uh, But origin, meaning, morality, destiny are four key things that a religion is going to need to address. And so what I want to do... Well, before you go into that, though, I noticed what you didn't say was transcendence or God. What's the thought process? You know, I think that's where, like, so many people's brains go immediately is a religion is thoughts about God. Explain that. Yeah, exactly. So I think, Drew, where we're coming from is this idea that we all have systems of belief, mental maps that make sense of the universe. For a lot of people, that doesn't involve a a transcendent being. It doesn't involve a higher power. So religion, by our definition, doesn't necessarily necessitate a God that's outside of ourselves. 
but it's a it's a system of belief that orders the universe that makes sense of why are we here? What does it mean to live a good life? Where is this all headed? Uh, so that's where this idea of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, a lot of other ways to say it, uh, but these are the key questions that a religion in this sense is addressing. So the two predominant narratives in our culture that address these four questions are the secular narrative and the Christian narrative, and using those terms very broadly. And just as a disclaimer, we're going to dive into this much more deeply over the uh, coming two to three episodes. So this is just going to be a 40,000-foot view of these two narratives, and it's far more complex than this, far more nuanced, but just as a starting point. I want to start with the secular narrative. It's this kind of atheistic narrative and uh, run through those forward points, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, and then run through the Christian narrative. The secular narrative, the origin story is that we are a happy accident, that we're the product of time, chance, and chemistry. And the implication of that is that the world is understood from the inside out, that I can't be sure of anything outside of myself from an ontological standpoint meaning the, the study of that which is, that which is real. If that's the case, then like Rene Descartes, I can doubt everything down to my very existence. That's Rene Descartes. He coined that famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. He, he had so much existential angst that he got to the point where just because he had a thought about himself, at least he knew that he existed. There's nothing outside of myself that orders the world. And if my ontology, if my understanding of reality is limited to my inner world, then that gives rise to all different types of belief systems like nihilism that, well, because this is all there is, might as well just end it all or have a very bleak outlook on life or Epicureanism that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Uh, but that's the origin story. It's time plus chance plus chemistry. And that gives rise to how I think about meaning. What does it mean to be human? Why are we alive? And deep down in the secular narrative, there is no meaning. There is no ultimate objective meaning outside of myself. That meaning is simply assigned based on the individual or the individual's culture. Uh, that meaning is assigned from the inside out. Morality then, the good, typically becomes the discovery and preservation of the self. Again, if if I am what's real, then discovering kind of my inner child, discovering who I am meant to be is the ultimate good. And sin then is to impose any kind of binding restriction, any kind of limitation on the self. And so that's what you see in our culture, that really the only sin is to call something a sin, right? And then salvation in this sense will arise out of your assigned meaning for life. So if your outlook on life is kind of eat, drink, and be merry, then, then salvation in this sense, or the realization of self-actualization or self-realization is to enjoy life to the fullest. Or again, if it's nihilism, then it could even be suicide to exit the pain of life. Or or humanism, that specific strain of secularism, to leave the world a better place as far as depends on human agency. And then with destiny, according to the secular narrative, there is no ultimate destiny. So might as well leave the world a better place or might as well eat, drink, and be merry. So let's, I know, you know, we're using all these terms of what makes up a belief system. But Mick, so if we're going to say it simply, what we're looking at here is that ultimately the universe does not have any purpose. So whatever purpose we find is that which we find inside of ourself. 
So my goal then is because there is no inherent purpose, I've got to give it purpose. And I do that by looking inward. And then really as a society, what we're trying to do is create space so that each individual person can find their own meaning, not get in each other's way. And that somehow is going to lead us into some kind of meaning, happiness, destiny. Is that? Yeah, at its core, absolutely. And, and then what we see, though, is that systems will assign meaning in the absence of somebody actually taking the initiative to think it through. And so a lot of consumerism is based on the assigned meaning of you know, life is about me. It's about enjoyment. It's about fulfillment, the pursuit of happiness, pleasure. And you have a system that perpetuates that meaning. But absolutely, at the core, there is no ultimate purpose. There is no ultimate meaning in the secular narrative. And so it's it's assigned. And that's shifting sand, of course. That's, uh, that's a moving target. The Christian narrative, by contrast, actually is diametrically opposed to the secular narrative at these critical junctures. Now, there's some overlap that we'll talk about and some nuance in later episodes. But the Christian narrative, the origin story, of course, Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth, that we humans are an intentional act of a heart and a mind and a will that's outside of ourselves. And the key contrast here is that life then is understood ontologically from the outside in, that there is an objective source of truth, an objective source of reality that's not just the self, that's not just my immediate environment. My ontology starts and ends with the person of God and not my own person. Meaning then is derived. It's not assigned. I derive meaning from who God is and what he says about the world. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We'll talk about this in a later episode, but that's where you see the Imago Dei, that the image of God, people are created in God's image for fellowship with him and for the glory of God. And that becomes then my framework for understanding why I'm alive, why humans are on this earth. Morality, the good is not about discovery of the self or preservation of the self, but of the person of Jesus. He is the good embodied in a person. And salvation uh, then doesn't arise out of my assigned meaning, whatever I think about life and its purpose, but the meaning that derives from God which again is fellowship and glory. And so salvation is being saved back into a relationship with God for his purposes, which actually turn out to be ultimately for my joy as well. And discipleship in that sense is conformity to God's image and not conformity to my own self-image or some cultural projection of an image that is defined as good. Destiny in the Christian narrative, of course, uh, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 talks about the unification of all things in Jesus, that, that he is reconciling the world in himself. You get the hope of physical resurrection on a new earth, the eradication of tears and sickness and death, and so on. It's, a, it's one of tremendous hope, where the secular narrative of destiny is one of tremendous hopelessness. So that, again, that's a 40,000-foot flyover, but we, we start there and, and think this is really important because as there's been something of a movement of the deconstruction of faith, to your point, Drew, in the last episode, something's going to fill that gap. And we need to be aware that there is a competing narrative to the Christian narrative that is seeking to fill that gap at every turn. So, Drew, how does this secular narrative manifest in our society? What are a few ways that you've observed yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, we're, we're talking uh, kind of these pure doctrines on either side. Nobody lives that way. I wish I could live fully in the kingdom worldview and Lord let it be, but that's not 
you know, we're all influenced culturally and, and some of those influences can even be good influences. And some of them, if we just described can be really challenging. Uh, I think there is a middle space with this that I'm going to term cultural Christianity, where we use the language of the kingdom and following Jesus, but it's very much mixed together with um, what we just described, uh, whether it's secularism or other forces. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, we we have a hard time thinking outside the box of cultural Christianity sometimes of what does it mean to really uh, embrace a kingdom perspective. And so we see that and we see that a lot in, in our culture today. I would argue that a lot of the elements that seem so powerful in our society and so different, you know, maybe some of the various um, political perspectives or even some of the stuff going on today as far as like philosophically what is truth or whatever, a lot of them have their origin, even though they seem so opposed to us today, they all boil down to that secular narrative. So there's this idea that there is no ultimate meaning in the universe. So the meaning is whatever we give it. I mean, that's the fundamental basis for the people that are yelling at each other on Facebook. A lot of them are still believing that to be true. And very few people are actually challenging. What if the whole story is wrong? Mm what if there is meaning to the universe? That really changes just about everything. And so if we were going to take this down and say, okay, so like, what are the, what are the key doctrines? I'm going to, I, I, like I said last time, I like using religious language to describe this so that we get over this myth of neutral culture. So if I was going to give this new religion doctrine, I'd argue it's three things. It's individualism, naturalism, which we'll explain that here in a second, and humanism. Um, so let me start with individualism. And that's that the world revolves around individual human persons. And this is the basic building block for society. We in the United States in 21st century, this is the most radically individualistic culture that I'm aware that has ever existed on the earth. Um, Individualism is not bad. And there's certainly plenty of cultural examples where they took it too far the other way. And if we had a podcast and a country that was run by a dictatorship, we might be, we might be addressing um, the importance of individualism. So, you know, there's, there's balance to all of this. But as Americans, we have a hard time thinking in any other category than ourselves as individual people. And you see this all over the place. I, I, you know, was thinking about how we name babies in our country, you know, at least if you're our age, uh, there's this trend where the goal of the parent is to try to find a baby name that nobody else has. And so we come up with these very unique baby names because our babies are these unique individual people. And I was thinking about like most of human history, that's not how they named their kids. Like you gave your, your child a name that shows continuity with your family or your tribe. That's individualism. Or like in our culture, it's such a faux pas if you show up dressed the same as somebody else. And I've been to countries where they intentionally dress the same. We want to show our uniqueness, so we want to dress unique. In other cultures, They want to show continuity. They want to show that they belong together. And I mean, we could point out like thousands of examples, but we are incredibly individualistic as a culture. And we live with this idea that that the world revolves around us. There's some good to that, but there's also, I think we're at the point where we're seeing a lot more of the negative of how radically individualistic our culture is. Uh, Mick, tell us about naturalism. That might be the most unfamiliar term. Yeah. And before I do, just a comment on individualism, you know, a reading of the New Testament, I was actually just looking at Ephesians 1 this morning with a group of guys. And so many of the pronouns are the first person plural, us, we, you know, the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven, not my father. And you'll, you'll rarely see the first person plural, uh, sorry, the first person singular 
So often it's our, us, we, we're part of the body of Christ. And so this individualistic mindset really has implications for how we understand our spirituality. Even the word you in scripture, uh, in Greek, it's almost always plural. And English fails us at this point, but you could really go through your New Testament and most of the time scratch out the word you. And if you live in the American South, write in the word y'all, because that's a more accurate that's translation right. Or for the, you Northerners, you guys, or whatever you, you say. Guys, yeah. I grew up in the Midwest, so I'm stuck with that one. But uh, yeah, it's a great point, Mick, that how we read Scripture. And I think even I'd encourage all of you guys as you as you uh, as you read the New Testament, emphasize the fact that this is talking to us, not just to you. And it really does change the way that you read the Word of God. Yeah, huge implications. And we'll, we'll dive more into that later, too, as we talk about the meta narrative of Scripture and the implications for us as Christians. Uh, but yeah, naturalism. So that would be another manifestation of this kind of mashup of secularism and Christianity in the West. And naturalism is essentially this idea that that there is nothing beyond the natural world, that what we can test empirically in a lab is the extent to which things exist, again, ontologically. This uh, this leads to something called scientism, where our belief about origin, meaning morality and destiny, uh, is defined by the scientific method, is defined by what we can see and taste and hear and touch. And there's a problem there because science is all about observation. It's about description, answering the question, what? It was never meant to be an explanatory tool to answer the question, why? But I would argue that most Christians in the West are maybe maybe cognitively, mentally, they believe in a spiritual dimension, but on a functional level, I would say naturalism has pervaded our Christianity far more than we would be, that we would like to admit. As I began my journey with the Lord, I would read the scriptures and see these you know, miracles and this idea that God is sovereign and he can move in and out of his creation in whatever way he chooses. But then when I actually started hearing these stories that my friends would tell of healing and I was, I came up against this barrier, this naturalistic barrier of, man, I, I want to believe that, but how can I take a step over that barrier when I haven't experienced that, when that's so far out of my day-to-day -day functional experience until we started to see similar things where we could not explain them away with naturalistic or materialistic uh, terms. One example that really impacted my wife and I, we were in Beverly, Massachusetts, so not even in a kind of third world culture where they are very open to the spiritual. And we were in this very secular space and uh, long story, very short, there was a lady there who had uh, an injury to her neck from a car accident. And my wife in prayer felt like God wanted to heal somebody with a neck injury, asked around and turns out a lady was there with an injury. And she went over and put her hand on her neck and felt bones starting to pop back into place. Wow. And, and this lady, it turns out after the fact, and, and she uh, was, was stunned because she could feel it too. There's actually several people praying for her and who all felt this same experience. And this lady, it turns out, was not a believer. And she had come to this meeting as a seeker and had just been praying, God, if you're real, give me a sign. That's amazing. And my wife goes over and prays for her. She goes back to the doctor, gets x-rays. It's a medically verified uh, miracle, healing miracle that could not be explained away. It impacted her whole family. She made a YouTube testimony about it. It was incredible. 
And it's sad that it takes experiences like that to get, you know, naturalistic Westerners over that hump. And even then we're tempted to explain it away using just uh, natural descriptions. An interesting thing with naturalism is that it is not something that can be proven by science. So it's an assumption about science that science itself can't prove. And people realize that actually the last hundred years, that's a big topic um, in uh, even in the secular world or especially in the secular world. Uh, but there's there's not really a solution for that problem. And so people are arguing about why naturalism is wrong using the, the logic of naturalism. And it's kind of ironic and funny to watch. But it's under attack in our culture. But I still think I agree with you that that's the foundation of what people believe and a lot of Christians. Yeah, to your point, Drew, there are actually very few scientists who are true believers in that sense, true believers in scientism, that science is all that there is. There's actually a quote by a NASA scientist who since passed away, but his name is Robert Jastrow. He was the founder of the Goddard Institute of Space Studies at NASA. And he says it this way, quote, for the scientist who's lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So essentially as he kind of walked out the logical implications of his belief system in science and the power of reason. He found that there were simply questions on things like origin, meaning, morality, destiny, that science couldn't answer, and that actually are questions that belong to this other band of thinkers, theologians, philosophers, and so on. That's an an epistemological question, epistemology being the study of knowledge. How do we know things? Science is simply one epistemology. Historically, there have been many, many others, the epistemology of faith and the supernatural and even art and beauty. So uh, Drew and I, we both have a high view of science, but we would say a a mere material explanation of the cosmos has its limitations. We need to be aware that that's a predominant way of understanding the world here in the West. And lastly, humanism, Drew. uh, explain, Explain what we mean by humanism. Hey, humanism simply is a belief in human power. And uh, I think this goes without question almost anywhere in our culture, that we as humans have power to do stuff that needs to be done or give meaning to the world. Um, If I were going to summarize the secular humanistic religion um, into a short saying, I'd say, be true to yourself, be good to others based on the power within you. And it's everywhere. I uh, had this interesting experience a couple weeks ago. I was walking through Target. And I looked at all these greeting cards and one of them jumped out at me. They had it on this display rack and it said, never change. And it was meant to be like an encouragement. And, you know, I mean, I, I might give that to you, Mick, as a way of saying like, you know, you're awesome the way that you are. And, and so I, I understand the point of it. But I got to thinking most of us don't need that message. Like if you have an anger issue, I'm going to get you the greeting card that says, please change, you know. And um, but it goes back to, you know, this gospel of humanistic culture that you are fundamentally good and you got to be true to what's inside of you. And let's get rid of anything that might oppress your whatever you feel right. about yourself. And let's remove those barriers. So you're just free to be your unique self and make meaning of the life that you've been given by chance in this universe. And we're just going to that. That's the point of all of it. That's the gospel message. And Look for it this week. We said that last time. I'm saying it again. It's everywhere in our culture. It's the gospel message of our culture. And what I've found is that most of us, we, even as we might be confessionally Christian, 
and what we what we affirm and what we confess to be true emotionally we are secular humanist in so many ways our, our faith is when what we can scientifically prove we are guided by this individualistic mentality that i've got to make meaning in the world our confidence is in our own power and these things are so foundational i don't think you know last time we talked about the beliefs, not the ones we think through, but the beliefs we never stop to think through. I don't think hardly any of us ever stop to question these beliefs and what an effect they've had on us and in, on our culture. And um, our hope, you know, just dialoguing a little more about this is that we start to see it. We start to see some of the differences and start to see the ways that we've been impacted by it. Um, there was a very interesting study a few years ago of American youth and what they really believed. Um, we're not going to dive into all of it. We've given you enough terms today, but um, it's called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. And you're welcome to Google it and you'll see it. But uh, in a lot of ways, it's really this kind of secular humanistic belief system, religion, with Christian language sprinkled on top of it. And I think that's what's going on. I, I think that's what most of us deep down inside are at the very least heavily impacted by in the way that we view the world. Okay, so to recap, ideas are powerful. They give rise to our functional belief systems. And just because an idea is well-intentioned doesn't mean it's a good idea. Uh, the secular and the Christian narratives, sets of ideas are fundamentally different at certain critical junctures. And to close, we uh, we're looking at Ephesians 1 this morning, group of guys and I. And I was looking at the prayer of uh, Paul in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. And I think it's a great, it's a powerful antidote to these, these three manifestations of the secular narrative we've been talking about, naturalism, humanism, individualism. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. That's, that is a prayer against naturalism, that he's praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to this reality that's outside of ourself, the knowledge of God, that we are part of this much greater fabric of reality than we would otherwise be aware of without the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that the church, the people of God, we are Jesus's bride, Jesus's inheritance, and we are part of that fabric. And that goes against this idea of individualism, but we're part of this global family. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Of course, being an antidote to humanism, that we create change this just through human agency, but we actually need the power of God working inside of us to create change. Well, that's it for this episode. For those of you listening, we are a brand new podcast. Feel free to share, to subscribe, help us get the message out. And thanks for tuning in, guys. And we will catch you next time on Ideology.